Hello everyone, this is Sarah Jamshidi. Welcome to Peace Mindedly, a program for peace lovers and peacemakers. So from now on, up until the end of November, every Tuesdays at 12 noon, we will come here, Mateen and I, come here to bring you fantastic programs about peaceful bridge makers. Before I dive into the show, I have one request from you that is important to me and maybe your contribution to the world peace. And that is to please share the same program on your timeline. The thing is that if you would like to be an advocate for peace, especially for Africa and for Africans who our program is about that continent, especially a very particular nation, that is that is important that you support us with our peace journalism initiative. For those of you who are listening to Peace Mindedly, we are live streaming our show on Facebook. There are so many social media. It's the Prescope supported by Twitter, on YouTube, on Facebook, many, many channels. And then uh, throughout the program, you hear me that I'm saying thank you, Zahra, thank you, Jenny, thank you, Edward, to sharing their comments and questions. Those, those kind of descriptions and explanations are coming from people who are sharing their thoughts with us on YouTube, on Twitter, and also on, on on Facebook. Also, I need to mention that English is my third language. I am not a native speaker. During the interview, I explained Majid Majidi's Children of Heaven movie. I use her instead of his for Ali's character, the boy. The mistake is pretty obvious and very embarrassing. I hope you do not hold that against me. After all, I try to speak the language in a way that you can understand me. And believe me, I am trying to do my best. So today, I'm talking with Emmanuel Tibonera and Drew Menard. Emmanuel is the author of Congo Soul, How Once a Barefoot Refugee Delivered Hope, Faith, and 20,000 Pairs of Shoes. I'm going to bring Emmanuel to the screen. Hello, Emmanuel. Hi. Hello, hello, hello. So Emmanuel is a public speaker, songwriter, singer, traveler, humanitarian, and co-founder of Tibonera Foundation, a nonprofit organization that he founded with his two brothers out of, I think, five in North Carolina. Their mission is to give back and empower people of their homeland, Congo. And here with us, I have Drew Menard. Hi, Drew. Hey, thank you for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. Thanks uh, so much for being here. Drew is a writer, friend of Emmanuel, and a passionate storyteller. Drew has won awards for his columns and written extensively for magazines, newspapers, and digital publications. Very welcome, gentlemen. It's very good to have you here. Thank you. Absolutely. So, Emmanuel, the question is for you. I was reading the book, and there are so many scenes in the book very, very familiar to me for a few reasons. First, uh, I've experienced war. I experienced revolution. I was grown up in Iran, and then I was a war correspondent. So the anecdote that you are going through is very familiar to me. But I want to you please to take us to the scene when you and John sent out to fetch water and then the soldiers came came in in the in the place that you were playing soccer and they were just their mission probably was to abduct boys for a child soldier tell me what happened yeah, thanks for for having me. I'm actually I'm happy that you read the book. Wow, that's really um that's amazing. Uh, the story about about that me and John. I mean, I remember we we went to fetch water. That was way way back, and um, we were just just being normal as normal kids. And our parents wanted us to give uh, fetch water, and it was because there was very much a long line where we were getting water, and it was just not us. And a lot of people were there 
trying to get what as well. And you know, sometimes as young boys and you want to, okay, you want to stick to the mission where you was going to fetch water, but at the same time, you you don't want to just sit there and wait. So we started playing with other kids and playing soccer and all these things. And, and there was just these people who were in uniform just showed up and, you know, that's how kids basically in the Congo are disappearing where they would just come and, and hand over candies and all these things and 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 just children would disappear. And my brother was there and he was actually going after and uh, I saw him going that direction and had to call his name like, hey, don't go over there. And because kids were coming and the story was after that, none of those kids were not seen around because they just, they were taken. And um, me having to observe that, and I was a little bit far from him and he was going for the candies. Uh, but it's one of those stories where he could have been gone, I could have been gone, but we are here today, you know? So it's really important thinking about what really happened and seeing that a lot of kids were gone during that moment and never came back. The kids never came back. So, you know, Yes, yes. So, Drew, Congo has gone through tremendous, tremendous hardship. Started uh, in late 19th century, the country was colonized. Just very quickly, uh, between 1996 and 2001, the Great War of Africa lost 6 million people either by direct fighting or through uh, malnutrition and through other causes, through disease and so forth. So we are talking about big, big difficulties. But at the same time, we are narrowing it down to one particular story, one particular anecdote. And that gives us so much power that we could see what was happening through the, the eyes of the person who has going through the experience. Were there any aha moments for you? Or tell me about your experience of writing the book with Emmanuel. Well, it was certainly a, a wild ride, I'll say. Um, Emmanuel came to me. Um, I'd done a few articles. I was doing some publication work in the city where he went to school. And for the school, he went to Liberty University. And yeah, he approached me, asked me to write the book. And so just the time of life I was in, having small kids, having just finished grad school, working full time, it was not an ideal time to take on a project like this. But man, it was a wild ride. But I will say writing this book has, has opened my eyes tremendously. I consider myself to be fairly globally conscious. And yet I had never heard um, a lot of the stories, the things that were going on in the Congo in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, and the things that are still going on today. And what really blew my mind, what really stood out to me was the fact that this is one of the richest countries in the world in terms of minerals, and yet its people are among the poorest. And that just shows the exploitation that has taken place generation after generation. Um, People coming in, exploiting the people, and then also the leaders of the country exploiting their own people for gain. And and that's just so shocking to me um, to know that you can have all of these resources literally under your feet and yet not benefit from them. And that's something I think, especially Americans have a hard time understanding. Yes. So at least in the media, we really, we really try to reshape. I'm just going to bring Emmanuel. We try to reshape uh, realities and facts for the American public to digest. Otherwise, it's just horrendous, extremely difficult to even comprehend some of those violence that is happening in Africa and in many other countries. But, but do you have, do you have a scene? Drew, that you can explain and tell us. I mean, the, the whole book has written in such an interesting format that I can't. I, I believe that they can just, you know, uh, they can just make a movie out of it. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, um, is there scene or tell me what really struck and what was your, fa- your your favorite piece that you were writing in the book? There's certainly a few I could I could point out and just going back to, to writing the book. And certainly, yes, I encourage people to read the book for yourself. I think it's, it's a tremendously powerful story. It's Emmanuel's story. I can't take any credit for it. It's, it's just, it's amazing what he went through and where he's at today. Writing the story, one story that, that just right off the top of my head pops out. Um, I have siblings. I have two brothers and a sister, and they're both younger than me. They're all younger than me. So Emmanuel and I are both the oldest child in our families. And just one scene I remember is, 
when shortly after their house had been shaking from bombs going off and, and hearing gunshots through the night, they knew they locked in their house and they knew they had to get out. So now Emmanuel, his parents, and a number of his young siblings, he has, I believe, eight siblings altogether. I believe there's nine of them. So a very large family. They weren't all born at the time. I believe his mother was pregnant. But just the scene of people amassing and crowding out of the city, they're they're smashing up against each other in the streets. They're all trying to get out of the city. People are carrying and grabbing as much stuff as they can. And at this time, Emmanuel's parents, and as a parent myself, I can relate to just always having this, this, this protective instinct and this, this fear that, that something could happen to your child. His parents are, are corralling these children through these busy winding streets. And, and during this time, there's, there's people getting trampled, there's people getting knocked over, and, and there's people getting left behind. And they're walking literally over dead, bleeding bodies as they're moving out of the city. And, and to me, it's just shocking to think as, a, as an older brother fearing for my younger siblings, as a parent fearing for my own children, as you're just trying to get somewhere safe, you just want to get away from it. And you, I mean, they had place to go, but it was many, many miles away into the jungle, into a village. But, but the dad didn't decide to go right away. He decided he's going to wait because the mom was pregnant mm -hmm. and because um, he thought that he just cannot get the whole family through the chaos safely. So he, he decided to wait. And oh, my God, <laughs> I just I just cannot imagine what he went through to to finally decide that this is something he had to do. But Emmanuel, what is um, what do we what do we learn from the violence and exploitation, you think? What do you want us to learn about violence and exploitation in Congo? I think um, what I want everybody to learn is, is real and it's been happening in the Congo. And I think we need to pay attention to what has been going on in this country for a very long time. You know, I personally, being a child, have experienced war. I've been told that, and uh, living now the country, now I'm in at a better place. I've been educated and have all these things, but I still have uh, my heart for my motherland country. Because I left when I was young and I'm mature enough. And through the humanitarian work that I've been doing in the Congo, and I've been to different villages. And when I went back 2015, you know, and I was surprised to see that this country need help, you know, starting from colony, when we were colonized by Belgium until now, the country hasn't changed yet. And this is real. So what I want people to get from this book is like, we are all involved or we all have a piece of Congo, probably in your pocket, probably in your home and everywhere. And I feel like Congo now need to get that attention that is needed because we barely get into the media. We barely have people talk about the issues in Congo. Exploitation in Congo is real. And sometimes, and I keep, I've been saying this for quite some time now that I feel like Congo doesn't belong to Congolese people. It just belongs to a certain group of people. And I personally, I feel it as a burden to speak up because that's how change starts when we talk about these things. And, and that's why I want people to understand that Congo needs us. If we all benefit from this country, then this is the time that's coming that we all need to speak up on behalf of Congolese people. So I want people to get that message and feel our pain as well. Why? I mean, so first you said that there, everyone has a piece of Congo in their pocket. Yeah. And then second, you, you said that people you want people to learn and know about Congo. Why it's important to you? It's very important to me because I can change who I am. I was born in this country. This is how I grew up. Now I'm an American citizen. But out of my family members, I still have uncles and cousins and, and everybody is in the Congo. Out of everybody, out of my family members, I'm the only one and my siblings that were able to leave the country. So my aunt, my uncle, my cousin, everybody's in the Congo and they call me every single day. They text me every single day. Anytime I go to Congo, these people want to come with me back here because they don't want to live in the Congo. And, and this is so dear to me knowing that Everybody else is in the Congo. I'm the only one who is here. So that knowing that this is where I was born, I can change that. And I came to agree and came to an agreement that this is where I was born. This is my motherland. 
And um, this is just a special heart for me, for that nation we are knowing that every other country is improving. There's a lot of changes going on around the world, but the Congo, it keeps sinking and sinking everywhere, every single day, and no one wants to talk about it. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I'm saying. This is so dear to me, knowing that any the, the, the minerals that are in the Congo benefits everyone else, except Congolese people. And, and uh, I wanted to bring that to awareness and, uh, and, and start that fire in people's heart knowing that, hey, we're all benefiting from Congo, but at the same time, we are losing lives, you know? Andrew, so so did you want to add anything? Oh, I was just saying, when you say Congo is in our pocket, literally our phones would not work without the Colton that comes out of the ground there. And so, I mean, we, the electronics, the gadgets we have, we benefit from this place every day. Um, but I mean, just beyond that, I mean, just as human beings, I mean, whether someone lives next door to you across the street from you in the same town in another country, there are brothers and sisters in humanity. And I just, I really believe that, you know, we need to, as a, as a global community, we really need to be working together to ensure that these human rights violations, these exploitations are not happening because, you know, I believe as a society, we've moved way past this. We're still, you know, working out things here in America, but we've certainly progressed way past a lot of what's going on in other countries. And I think we have an obligation with the resources we have, with the platforms we have to, to do what, all we can to save lives and to bring better lives to others. So if we have a piece of Congo in our pocket, uh, we are also exporting pieces of United States to Congo, which is shoes. Emmanuel, why shoes? Why not food? Why not T-shirt? Why not, I don't know, so many things. Why shoes? Well, shoes for me is important. First of all, I would say um, when you provide a pair of shoes to a Congolese child, you are empowering them to walk again, to stand on their feet and feel comfortable to walk on the contaminated soil. I got my, fair, my first pair of shoes when I was 10 years old. And um, it was not easy for me. And uh, knowing that there's not a lot of kids in the Congo who can afford a single pair of shoes, knowing that I come from a country that has a lot of kids that have been infected due to, due to the contaminated soil. And um, it's very painful knowing that um, lots of kids actually get sick from from the viruses. And and shoes for me, having gone back 2015, I witnessed so many kids have no pair of shoes on. Uh, there's a parasite called Jigas, and it kind of enters your toes, and uh, it causes a lot of infections. And so many kids in this country and and some parts in Africa cannot afford a pair of shoes. And I felt. I felt that in my heart, knowing that I got my first pair when I was 10 years old, and knowing that I was coming from the United States, a country that is so blessed, knowing that we have a lot of shoes even are collecting dust in our closet. And it touched my heart knowing that I personally, I felt guilty knowing that I have shoes that I don't even wear. And knowing that kids are, are getting sick because they can't afford a pair of shoes. I was like, no, that's when something in my heart and my, my two brothers, I was like, hey, we got to do something and, and provide shoes to, to Congolese kids. Shoes is important. When they got their first shoes on, they were able to walk. You could see the smile. And we started fighting against this uh, parasite where the only prevention could be just providing a pair of shoes to these people. Drew, why shoes? Well, I remember seeing a picture from one of his trips to Africa, and it's a little girl and she doesn't have any toes. And it broke my heart. Um, wow. <laughs> just I can just picture that image in my head. And, you know, those are things you might hear about, but seeing them hits you much harder. I couldn't even imagine what it's like for Emmanuel living in America for, for a number of years, going home and having these high expectations. Wow, the world is modernizing. You know, look at what's happening in Rwanda. I can't wait to see what's happening. And then to go and to see that, it just would break your heart. And so that's where it started. I mean, his organization also provides food. Um, they bring other resources. They actually sponsor an orphanage. Um, they, they take care of it. So it's not simply that, but, but shoes is just such a powerful message, um, especially because of where it relates to Manuel's story. Um, literally a kid on his knees, having just used a needle to dig a jigger out of his toes, have his, his mom would do it. <laughs> I doubt he would do it himself. You tell me, Emmanuel. But having having using needles to dig the, these parasites out of your toes and then 
falling on his knees praying for a pair of shoes. Well, today he's now able to be the answer to that exact same prayer for somebody else. Excellent, excellent. So here, I wanted to. I I have written up if I can show you, and then and then I just wanted to share you uh, this piece. Uh, it's related to shoes. Okay, so it's a scene. Uh, one of my favorite scene is directed by Majid Majidi. He is an Iranian director, and it shows a. A, a scene. The name of the movie is Bachahai Asaman or Children of Heaven. And then, he, I mean, it's just mind blowing. So, he, 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 how it goes is Ali is the protagonist, and Ali is a boy who goes to school, but he shares a pair of shoes with her sister. And the shoes is her sister's shoes. So basically, they have only one pair of shoes. And then what happens is uh, at the when, when when there is a release time that uh, Ali needs to go back home, he just like cheetah. He just runs into the street, just runs with all his might to get himself home. And to just, you know, take off the shoes as quickly as possible. And uh, her sister is waiting by the door and just uh, gives the shoes to the sister and helps her out to wear the shoes. And the sister is just again like a cheetah so fast, goes to the school and the, the sister goes to, to the school in the afternoon. The brother goes to the school in the morning. And then what happens is when it, one of the pairs get lost. And it's what's what's happening. So I was reading the book, and this image was constantly in my mind that um, shoes is very important. If you do not have shoes, I mean, you cannot go to school because of the humiliation or because of so many different reasons. I really wanted to share this with you, but stay put, stay with me. I'm gonna come back, and when I come back, I'm gonna ask you about your favorite scene or things that happened that. You are so proud. You are so proud of what you are doing, or you are so proud of the event that happened. So stay put with me. You are watching to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. You can find us on here on Facebook. We are on different channels on Peace Mindedly channel, Go to News channel, and also on my profile channel, Peace Talk with Sarah. Also, we are featuring the same conversation on Periscope. It's the supported by Twitter and also on YouTube and LinkedIn. If you are listening to the same program, I, we are just keep talking about right now. We have Wani, we have John, we have Anna, we have Ovis, we have Toby, many people who have either commented about the show and the program or they are giving us feedback. So we are live streaming uh, the conversation to get exactly that, to get the connection that I really uh, hold dear in my heart with our audience and uh, people who are interested in peace and bridging between the nations. For the next few Tuesdays up until the end of November, we are, we are coming back at 12 noon with uh, new programs. Next week, I'm talking with uh, Hafsa Lodi, Muslim American journalist based in Dubai. Hafsa wrote a book that that was recently released in the United States. The name of the book is Modesty, a fashion paradox uncovering the causes, controversies, and key players behind the global trends to conceal rather than reveal. I know a great deal about modest fashion and about halal economy, and I know that um, Hafsa and I are going to have an interesting discussion. Following that, uh, September 15, I'm talking with Elizabeth Lesser, author of many bestseller books, uh, including Cassandra Speaks. When women are storytellers, the human story changes. Elizabeth is the co-founder of Omega Institute, a nonprofit mission-driven organization on wellness, spirituality, and creativity. And I really believe that when women are storytellers, we just tell the stories from a different angle, or we probably include more angles within the storytelling. And we are going to explore that option with Elizabeth on September 15. Actually, September 15 is exactly the day that date that her book is coming out. For this hour, we are talking with Emmanuel Tibonera and Drew Menard.
authors of Congo Soul. How once a barefoot refugee delivered hope, faith, and 20,000 pairs of shoes. Emmanuel Tibonera, I'm bringing him our screen, left Democratic Republic of Congo when the Great War of Africa created a chaos, a chaos in his homeland. He was child back then. His family was relocated, or really better to say displaced, into a refugee camp in Kenya. There he went through numerous hardships and lots of difficulties until he and his family granted visa to come to the United States. Now here he founded Bonera Foundation and now he's on a mission to deliver shoes back to Congolese and his people in Congo. In his book, he chronicles his journey from one miracle to the next until he uh, arrives to the United States. Now he lives in Greensboro in North Carolina. Uh, Drew Menard is a professional writer living in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, he and Emmanuel graduated from the same university and Drew published his thesis on the new trend of transmedia storytelling and storytelling. Wow, that is. Uh, this is this is like, a, as I said, it's like a screenplay. And I wanted to see what are the, the scenes. I think I have already asked that question once before, but I want more answer of the scenes that you think it's uh, really striking to you and you really love it in a positive way, in a positive way. Drew, I'm going to start with you. Let me think. Uh, so <laughs> just pick up the book. You'll hear lots of great stories for sure. The story is incredible because of, of kind of the the differences of the the horrendous hardships that you'll face, but then also kind of the uplifting positive spirit behind the story and the work. And so Emmanuel, one thing that really, really sticks out to me is kind of how his, his, let's talk about the second part of his journey began his journey to become a humanitarian. I remember him telling me the story and then writing it for the book, how just one day, I mean, it wasn't at once because he had spent his whole life running away, but one day he realized I need to look back. And he opens his closet and he's looking there and he sees all these shoes and he doesn't wear, you know, a couple of pairs, a few pairs of them, you know, half dozen pairs or whatever. And he's like, I don't even wear these. And I remember not having a pair of shoes when I was 10. And so he just throws them in a box. And who knew where that box was going to go? Because years later, that box was going to join hundreds. I don't know how many pairs of shoes can fit in a box, but enough boxes to carry 20,000 pairs of shoes, and then years later, 50,000 pairs of shoes across the ocean to the Congo to help his people. And that's just inspiring to me. It was inspiring to me to see my kids, you know, go to the store and pick out a pair to bring to one of his events, um, even before I met him. Those are the little small acts of kindness that they, they multiply. And those are the types of things that bring real change to the world. And so just a college student, you know, any of us who've gone to school know, you know, sometimes you're just creating change to get your next McDonald's meal. But, you know, hey, I'm going to take these shoes that I don't wear and I'm going to put them to good use. And that started a movement. Mm -hmm. So in terms of shoes, what do you want? Oh, first, Emmanuel, tell me your favorite scene or your favorite part you, that you think is uplifting. Well, I think the first time uh, me delivering shoes to the Congo was the best best moment of my life knowing that i collected shoes with my whole family for i collected about ten thousand with them and then having uh, my uh, my school and friends and 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 kicking it for a cause and and stephen curry came over and and we raised uh, more than twenty thousand sneakers and me now delivering the first container to the congo it was the best moment of my life and as soon as i get it as soon as we started delivering different villages, yeah, I'm just seeing the smile uh, on their faces of these kids and uh, me getting on my knees and, and helping them to put on the shoes for the first time. That was uplifting for me. And I can't, I, can't, I will never forget those images and the smile on their face. It really touched my head knowing that um, when I was a refugee in Kenya, I remember I went to my knees and I cried for a pair of shoes. 
And now seeing that I'm going back home and I'm delivering thousands and thousands of shoes to kids that I don't have, that really was something that I'll never forget. Something that I kept thinking, I'm like, wow. You know, you could just see the kids jumping and smiling and putting on a sneaker for the first time, you know? That image is still in my mind. And I can, I think that was the best moment of my life. Also, another image was when I got the visa to come to the US. Because, you know, I was at the moment where I was like, if God, I'm a believer. And I was like, if God does not come and save me here, and then I don't know what else I'm going to do. As soon as I'm at that desperate moment, waiting for a miracle, I got a visa to come to the US. And I was like, thank the Lord, I'm here now, you know. Those moments and there's more and more and more uh, scenes that I can never forget, but those really changed my life completely. So how can people, if those who want to donate or share a pair of shoes, how can they find you? We are on every platform. If you just go on Facebook uh, and just type Imani Tibonera, you can see me. If you type in Tibonera Foundation, you'll see our page there. As soon as you type the last name, Tibonera, you'll see a lot of Tibonera coming. Just click on it and they will lead you to the foundation page, www.tibonerafoundation.org, and um, Tibonera Foundation on Instagram, on Twitter, Facebook, and just on every platform. And if you want to reach out for more information, for at the moment, where Shoes for me is a platform to change lives. So I'm, I'm going to continue giving shoes. But if you want to get to know more information about what we are doing, we just not only give shoes. Now we are in the process of building a community center. We want to build schools. We, we want to do all these things. So visit our, our, our website, our social media, and reach out if you want to change lives in Congo. Yes, Drew. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to add another uplifting story that just popped into my head. And this is yes. a different type of uplifting, but just the moments in the chaos. Um, I remember writing with Emmanuel a part where kind of he was a lot of his life was in the in-between, not knowing you know what was coming next or where they were going. And I just remember one time they were they were staying in a, in a, a small apartment somewhere, um, him and his siblings um, waiting for their dad to come get them to, to get them into Kenya and they had been going without meals off and on for some time. And he would just, he would have a hard time sleeping because as the oldest sibling, he felt a burden to, to take care of his siblings. And his mother obviously felt that, that motherly love for her family. And um, they would both be up in the middle of the night and together they would just hold each other and pray by candlelight. And to me, that's just a touching moment um, that I think really all of us can relate to in a different way. Just having those moments with someone you care about, not knowing what's coming, but knowing that you have that person. Yes, malnutrition is throughout the book. I mean, we just see see <laughs> that Emmanuel uh, doesn't have food to eat. I mean, days go by, nights go by, and you do not have food to eat. And then I'm thinking, okay, so we are talking about too much waste of food in the United States. So I wonder, what, what does it make you feel? It makes me feel just so, so angry. Uh, I think, I think it's, it makes me feel guilty sometimes when I'm, I have all these meals around me and I don't finish all of them because it just gets back to the life I had and how kids are starving. I was there in, in the Congo 2019 and I was holding little babies and kids who haven't had meals in for days and days and they're just in bad conditions. And, and the first thing I did was not even to put on a pair of shoes. It was just like, I need to feed these people so they can survive, so they can live for two or three more days. You know, we are so much blessed in this country. And I always tell my American brothers and sisters, you will know how much you're blessed until you leave and go visit other places and then you will understand that there's so much blessings in here that a lot of it we take for granted. We might think food food is very important. And someone like me that have gone for days without meals. And kids in the Congo and Africa and other places where can't afford uh, a meal a day and and having knowing you don't even know where it's gonna come from. It's, it's a very devastating moment. And I've, I've experienced that. So it's like when I see all these things on how blessed we are and the food we have and how much we waste. You know, I feel guilty within myself sometimes like, oh gosh, I wish I can get this to this to the people who need it the most because I've experienced that. 
And when somebody comes to me, I'll be like, I'm starving, I need something to eat. I've yes. lived that life. So it just touched me and I want to do more. Yes. What happens, what goes in your mind when you are so hungry for such a long time? What what happens? Tell tell me, tell me what happened to you. Here in America or no, in Congo. In Congo, I'm I'm powerless. Um, I don't have strength. I can I can do anything. Um, I mean, knowing that I've I went for so long without meals, I think my body system kind of used to it. We're knowing that I can get up in the morning, where I'm not gonna have any meal. So it's like my body kind of used to that, but still it's a struggle. So I was thin and losing weight, and 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 you know when you don't have when you didn't get anything to eat for two, three days, you know, how weak you're going to be. I experienced that. And I remember those days where you just, you just want to sit down and lay down because you don't have strength to move. You, you can't, you, you know how, how food in America is very important. People get three or four meals a day, you know, back then you get one meal per day and you'll be grateful so that you mm -hmm. can get to another day. You yes. Know? So, he may, he, he, I experienced that, and most of the time, you know, you don't have energy to play with other people, but my body got used to that life of, like, this is normal now. Well, I'm not expecting anything anyway, so I have to deal with it. So it's, it's even now, I still remember those days, you know. Mm -hmm. but, yes, so in my tradition, is Islamic tradition, we fast, and then in Ramadan. So then after day, um, day seven, I am crazy. I am just so, so agitated. And then the, everything slows down. My body slows down. Word slows down. I slow down. Everything slows down. And it was, it has happened to me thousand times when mm -hmm. I'm thinking when I am, you know, go, I mean, I, may, I know that at least at the end of the day, when the sun sets, I'm going to eat and I just devour food. <laughs> but but knowing that, uh, you know, throughout the day that I am not eating and everything is slow and I am so agitated, um, I'm just uh, keep thinking about, oh, my God, uh, what happens to those people who do not have food and how much we really granted for for the for the for the resources that we have so speaking of food do you have any uh, favorite food in the united states emmanuel um i like lasagna lasagna yeah that's i think that's my favorite so far so far yeah but okay. mostly i make my own like whole meals is, is really important to me but if i get lasagna I'm, i get excited Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, what is your favorite food in uh, Congo cuisine? Congo. Well, I I love goat meat most of the time. I I think it's, it's I like it better than beef. Uh, and we have all different types of food that rice and beans and other stuff. But me, when I get goat meat, it makes me happy. Like yes, yeah, so, and then it gets to be cooked in the African way, and uh, it's, it's my favorite. So what is the difference between cooking African way and any other way? How, how do you cook it? Oh, the Congolese way, uh, I think it's, it's different because of what we put in and, and the time that it takes to cook the food. And because life in America is so fast. And, and, and so take me through one of the meals that you make. Okay, let's say, for example, if I want like make goat meat, so I'll, I'll boil it first for a while and then I'll puts a little bit of oil in the pan and, and, and fry it and get onions and tomatoes and and put a little bit of pepper. So that, that takes a while because we are patient. Like I will take maybe an hour and a half, maybe an hour to prepare the whole. So once I put in the pepper, man, it's delicious, delicious. I can eat that with rice. I can eat that with cornmeal. They, they call it fufu. So that's my special African meal that I love to eat. Have you invited or cooked the same meal for Drew? No, we <laughs> no, no, we haven't. How dare you are, no, Drew? We've been trying to meet up, but most of the time we were busy writing, so we we didn't have yeah. time. But I think I think we're gonna we're gonna make it happen. There's people who are watching that have had a good meet. So someone like Vanessa, they can testify to that. 
Um, yeah, but I think Drew has to test it too. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying new things. I don't always take to it, but yeah. Yeah, okay. So, Drew, next time you see Emmanuel, you're going to have him to cook you and prepare you the food. Does the, is, there, is there any name for the food that you just explained? Uh, the, I was, the name of it? No, as in, in the language, it's, it's, I just call it goat. I would say probably in Swahili, it's called nyama mbuzi. Nyama mbuzi. Nyama mbuzi. I love it. Even, even the sound is delicious. <laughs> yeah, nyama mbuzi. Okay, true. Remember, nyama mbuzi. Excellent. So, God is present yes. throughout the book. Tell me about... I know that both of you cl are close to God. So, Drew, what was your experience of talking with Emmanuel? Tell me about the process, by the way. So, how the process really take place? Uh, did you did, did you have lots of interviews, interviews, and taking notes? What was the process of writing the book? So, one thing that was very important to me is this is not my book. Uh, I want to make sure that's clear. This is a manual story, and so I want to be as true to that as possible. Um, so it was very important for me to spend a lot of time with Emmanuel. You know, there are a few times I'd go to his place or he'd come over to my house, and we'd just talk for hours, and he would just tell me stories and tell me stories, and I'd listen and record. Um, and that really gave me an idea of the framework of the story. And then kind of as we as we outlined and kind of set the trajectory for the story, then we would go in deeper for for different stories. Really impressive to me was Emmanuel wanted to be a part of this. Um, he worked really hard. He would write for me. He wanted to have a hand in crafting his story. So he would actually write. And then I would kind of go behind him and, and kind of help him flesh things out. Being a native English speaker, you know, have much more ability to, to translate that over into, you know, something that would be more of a hopefully impactful narrative. But Emmanuel had a huge hand in it. We spent a lot of time together. We'd talk. I'd ask him a million questions. You can ask Emmanuel. I would text him sometimes late at night, sometimes in the middle of the day. I'd start texting him one question and then I'd text him like 10, you know, 20 more. Um, we went back and forth a lot. But surprisingly, we did this fast. I think when we sat down and talked, I told him, look, like I know he wanted a book and, you know, he wanted it as soon as possible because he was really excited and wanted to share his story. And I'm like, look, this is going to take a year, two years to, to get done. And I think we finished our first rough draft in three months. So credit wow. to the hard work him. Yes. What was your family's reaction, Emmanuel, towards the... Um, uh... I would say it, it was, um, they were not truly, I mean, they were not like on board at the, at the beginning because they didn't know how it's going to come out. But when we were writing, I was telling them I'm writing a book. Pretty much most of them were just waiting to see the final copy of just all done and stuff. But it was, uh, for me, writing the whole book was, was challenging, I would say, because I wanted to be a part of it. And Drew was, like, sending me, like, I don't know, 15 questions, reply them. And and I went, I would go ahead on a Google Drive and I'm writing, and he's writing. Like, we were doing, it was just a lot of writing. I've never been in that situation in my life, though I've been in college. But it was such a short period of time, and we were able to get it done. And it was just amazing to, to show it to the family, because I had to go back home and actually ask my dad questions and my siblings and they gave me their their input and all these things and it was a very interesting process because it was just all about writing and writing he drew truly helped me so much and and i can't thank him enough how helpful he was because uh, i knew the story i had everything and that's why we worried for a short period of time because we were really committed to get it done and and so here, uh, Luane Tibonera says this. So translate, Emmanuel, what is this? That's, that's actually my cousin. He's saying he loves my work. Yeah, he's Excellent. in the Congo right now, so I believe some Congolese people are watching. That's my Hoo -hoo! Yay! Congolese people are watching. That's amazing, the power yeah. of social media. Mm -hmm. And Vanessa says this. So she says that your mom and Priscilla make best goat. We are talking about food, and they are saying that they are just amazing chef, a cook. And, okay, so John says what? Tell me what is this? Nyama and Buzi. So, what me? 
<laughs> okay, okay, good, good, mate. Excellent. So we have had feedback and lots of people uh, talking, uh, commenting, and mentioning comments here on the program. Stay put, please. You are watching to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. For this hour, we are talking with Emmanuel Tibonera and Drew Menard, authors of Congo Soul, How Once a Barefoot Refugee Delivered Hope, Faith, and 20,000 Pairs of Shoes. You can find this book on goldtoon.com. Goldtoon.com. It's available uh, on electronic format. So we have information about the book. We have some of the book reviews. And uh, we are going to post uh, this interview and also edited version of the audio file of the same interview on on uh, goldtoon.com goldtoon.com is a website i manage with a group of international foreign correspondents Mateen is one of the editors we think we are so blessed and fortunate to um, to be able to use the help of the correspondents to create the stories that we are creating on goldtoon.com when you go to golden.com, please join our email list. We are just trying to, we are new and we are trying to grow. Uh, join all our email list and follow us on different podcast platforms. We are present on Apple Podcast, on Google Podcast, and on uh, many platforms, Spotify, many, many platforms. So it's very easy to find us, peace-mindedly. It's the name of of our show. Okay, I am so grateful for many of the comments that I had received here. But at the end of the program, I ask my guests to close the program by sharing something meaningful about peace and about kindness and compassion. It can be a prayer, it can be a statement, or it can be a passage from the book. So I'm going to go with Emmanuel first. Emmanuel, tell us what we'd like to share with us about peace kindness and compassion I think I think we all know that if there's no peace there's no development and the reason why for example a country like the United States is probably the most superpower and the, the greatest nation on earth is because there's peace in this country and I'm just speaking on behalf of, of my my brothers and sisters in Congo peace is the tool to everything if there's no peace there's no development nothing will ever happen in any country if they don't have peace. And that's what has killed my uh, my brothers and sisters in the Congo because we've never experienced peace that we need. And um, and it's very important knowing that the country has so much, but we are the poorest because we don't have peace. Peace is very important. And having to move around knowing that nobody will kill you, having to move around freely and experience that peace is, is that's how change begins and that's how we can transform a country. And um, when it comes to giving, um, I would say when you, a hand that gives is also blessed and it's very important to uh, uh, to reach out to someone that is in need. As at the moment that I would say that my people are in need of, of, of you and I to stand on, on their behalf and amplify their voices. And not only just sharing our stories, but also uh, supporting us through our nonprofit organization because we are changing lives in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And if you are involved in any kind, when you give, I believe that we are blessed to become a blessing to someone else. So when you give uh, to someone in any nonprofit, in, in any movement that is going on, though you probably are not on the ground, but your donation is probably changing someone's life. And uh, it's very important to stretch our hands and to continue giving. At the same time, I need everyone to join hands with me because I think I'm the change that Congo needs and I can't do it alone. And uh, and that's how you're going to be contributing in, make, in, in bringing change to the Congo and the all Africa if you join the movement and buy the book and spread the word and tell everyone no. Because once we bring the country uh, to the media, once we get all these things and let everyone know, that's how we initiate change in this country. So I want to, let's say that I want to donate a pair of shoes. What do I need to do? Steps? 
steps. Number one, if you want to donate a pair of shoes, I'll, I'll say, first of all, the first thing you need to do is to visit our website or send me a message or something, because we always have a collection center. Message yeah. where, Emmanuel? On, um, on my platform, Tibonera, or on our, on our website, www.tibonerafoundation.org. Reach us with a message, and then we can post a collecting center, because at the moment, we are not collecting due to uh, the pandemic and all these things. So in order for you to know when is the next step, you need to tibonerafoundation.org, send us a message, and they will let you know when we'll have any collecting center so that you can drop your Okay, okay. and then there is a collect, uh, collecting centers that they can go to and uh, donate the, the, the shoes, right? Yes, yes. That, that's when you ship, because you might be in another state, and that's where you're going to find the address. Mm -hmm. that you can ship. Or you, they can ship. They can yeah. ship the yeah. pair of shoes, I mean, um, shoes to, to yeah. the collecting centers. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much. So we are going to draw um, final thoughts. You sparked one thing in me before I get to my final thoughts, and, and just when you were talking about the, the the tradition of fasting in your faith. Um, that's also, I think, uh, it's also a, a core spiritual discipline in Christianity, my faith as well. And I think that it's, it's not an accident that that's a, such a, a powerful discipline in faith because it, it helps us have empathy to understand what it's like to go without. And that's where we also have that um, moment where we're totally dependent on God and we realize that, you know, we, we don't take care of ourselves. You know, there's something bigger out there that, that takes care of us. And we need to acknowledge that and out of that appreciation have generosity for others. And so for people like me who come from blessed backgrounds, it's education and action. That's how we grow. That's how we become peacemakers. Certainly hold fast to your convictions, but also listen with empathy, understand the limits of your perspective um, and seek to grow in your understanding. So that way you can better understand where people are coming from and learn from them um, and then take action to help them out in your own community and then across the world as well. Um, get involved. Um, if you have financial resources, um, give generously, um, but you can also give your time, um, volunteer. You can also give, you know, use your voice and your platform to raise awareness and to share information. Very good. Thank you very much. We are here with uh, Matingin, with Emmanuel and with Drew. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you for the comments. Thank you for the questions. And my guests and with my uh, producer, so long and uh, take care. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm.